Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The culturally appropriate two guests today. We'll hear from the Argentine political scientist Jacqueline Berend on that country's libertarian slash authoritarian new president, Javier Malay. And then Ben Fong will talk to us about the complicated American relationship with psychoactive drugs. I feel like I should apologize for having no Gaza content this week. What's been happening there is utterly horrifying, but for the moment I've run out of things to say about it. What Israel has been doing for the last three months with the unquestioning support of our government is appalling and criminal, and expressive of deep pathologies in both societies, rooted in an imperial paranoia that manifests itself in regular outbreaks of unspeakable violence. I'll turn back to the topic next week. A few weeks ago in this show, Forrest Hilton, our de facto South American correspondent, talked about the historical and theoretical background that brought about the election of the eccentric and unhinged Javier Malay as president of Argentina. Malay calls himself a libertarian, but like many libertarians, he's also an authoritarian. Lacking a majority in the Argentine Congress, by a long way, Malay looks to be ruling by decree, or at least trying to, and facing early opposition to his radical policy package, which includes comprehensive deregulation of almost all economic life and a 50% devaluation of the peso, his response has been to try to suppress complaint. The combination of devaluation and deregulation has intensified inflation, which is already running at 200% a year. Estimates of December's inflation run around 30% for the month, that is, not the year. That works out to an annual rate of over 2,000%, a tenfold increase in an already intolerable rate. Malay has a lot in common with Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro and our own Donald Trump. All are given to saying outrageous and hateful things that get people talking about them and paying attention. Unlike them, however, Malay looks to have a more systematic, though ludicrous, political philosophy, one out of Friedrich Hayek and Ayn Rand. During his campaign, he became associated with the chainsaw, a device he was going to take to regulations and bureaucracy. What would be constructed in their place wasn't disclosed. Like many libertarians, he seems to think that the spontaneous order of the market is all you need to govern a society. Here with more is Jacqueline Berend. She's a professor of political science at the School of Politics and Government, National University of San Martín in Buenos Aires. She also serves as a research fellow at the National Council for Scientific and Technical Research. Among her areas of interest are liberal structures within nominal democracies, a background that equips her well to understand Malay. Jacqueline Berend. Well, fun times in Argentina, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's terrible. You know, it's kind of, you can't decide whether it's fun or it's really depressing, actually. I was just paging through some uh, recent news on uh, on what's going on in Argentina, and I saw a headline from The Economist, which is far from my favorite publication, a radical experiment in libertarian rule. What do you make of that description, the libertarian part, which is you know, a commonly used word about him, but uh, what do you make of uh, that usage? Millet presents himself as a libertarian. You know, He presents himself as a follower of um, libertarian economists, so um, he's managed to persuade his voters that what he will do is going to give people a lot of freedom in a context where after COVID and the lockdown, a lot of young people felt you know, that this was necessary. So in a way, yes, there is a radical libertarian experiment in terms of the kinds of deregulation of the economy that he is trying to pursue and of many of his economic policies. But many of his economic policies are also linked to naive ideas about the role of the state. And uh, I think also you can see a lot of business interests there. So, so I don't know if it's just radical libertarianism or also, you know, a bit mixed up with the classic right wing in Argentina and right wing experiments that you can see in many parts of the world as well. Has he offered uh, opinions on the, the days of military rule? He did say something during the, de- the presidential debate before the elections, saying that there had been excesses. So he didn't condemn the military dictatorship or the human rights violations during the dictatorship. And what is most concerning as well is that his vice president is a lawyer and she's linked to the defense of the military. 
of former military officers accused of human rights violations. So even though he claims to be libertarian and, um, and in favor of freedom, in actual fact, he is very ambivalent and um, his vice president is pro-military. And when he was cornered and asked for an opinion, you know, he basically just said there had been excesses. So in Argentina, when somebody says there have been excesses, it's generally they're defending the military, because if not, you very openly say this was a time of dictatorship. There were human rights violations that were unacceptable and there were human rights trials, etc. His uh, party or his allies in Congress, he don't, they don't have that many seats, right? So to accomplish his ambitious agenda, he's got to rule essentially by decree. Is that what his uh, mode of operation is going to be? That's one of the most concerning parts of the new government for me. Millet has a political party that was created very recently. So in, in the legislative um, elections two years ago, he first managed to elect a few legislators. And then in these elections... Because in Argentina, you know, as a federal country, you have some national level elections and subnational elections, you know, provincial elections separately. He doesn't have many senators and he doesn't have many um, deputies either. He has a very small minority in both houses. Um, now, he's got a few allies, mainly from the pro party, the, the party of former president Mauricio Macri. But the thing is that there are other parties that were with Pro that were in a coalition and that are not willing to support Millet, or at least not in everything. So if you look at, for example, in the the Senate, he's got seven senators. Now, you need 37 senators just in order to session a quorum. And then in in the lower house, he's got only 37 out of, and, and, and quorum is 129. So it's it's very difficult. Um, he started his 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 mandate with this huge decree that included a lot of very broad deregulation of the economy, but a lot of other bizarre things as well. Decrees are in in, in Argentina they're called decrees of need and urgency. So the idea basically is that a president can only issue a decree if it is something really urgent, or if it's about regulating, for example, an existing law. But you shouldn't order uh, the complete deregulation of the economy, deregulation of health care, oil prices, um, rents, for example, including all state companies um, can be subject to privatization, closing down of a lot of cultural agencies like the National Arts Council, Theatre Institute, uh, funding for film industry. That doesn't sound like something that is urgent, right? That's something, something that cannot be debated in Congress. And it includes bizarre things like, for example, allowing football clubs to become listed companies. So it's listed on the stock exchange and therefore to be purchased by foreign investors. So, you know, it's a huge mixture. In parallel to the presidential decree, he sent a huge package of reform law that includes reform to about 300 laws. It's basically a revision of Argentina's whole legislative history. So on the one hand, he's trying to rule by decree, but that decree can be stopped by Congress if both houses stop it. If not, it will continue. But the law, he called for it to be discussed in extraordinary sessions during January, until the 31st of January. Now, it's very difficult to to discuss so many laws in such a short period of time. And this is what's happening now. You know, the discussion started yesterday in Congress. There's a huge discussion and um, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of inexperience in Millet's political party because either they didn't realize or they just tried to see if they could just, you know, get things to pass without reaching minimal agreements, at least. So it's a very concerning scenario right now. Do you get the feeling he knows what he's doing? I mean, he comes off as a bit of a lunatic and a wrecker. Is there some kind of method or strategy or is he just uh, improvising? He's going along. I think he's improvising, but he's surrounded by some people, at least. Some of them are new and are improvising as well. But others are politicians who have a bit more experience and who should probably know better. For example, he's sent this huge It's called the omnibus law, right, which includes the revision of 300 existing laws that range from regional economists to electoral system changes, which is a huge thing. And you don't debate a massive revamp of the electoral system in just 
30 days or even less because he sent the law without forming the congressional committees that need to discuss the details of the law. So there's a lot of inexperience in that. There's also a lot of inexperience in, for example, and, and maybe improvisation in the idea or or maybe just trying to see, you know, if it passes, it passes. But the idea that he's not sending his main ministers to discuss and to explain the different items included in this law. Now, normally, if you have an, an economic reform, you send your economy minister to Congress. You always send your cabinet chief, for example, because the cabinet chief, one of his functions, according to the Constitution, is liaising with Congress and also being accountable to Congress. So if the cabinet chief does not go when you're sending a huge reform of 300 laws, then you know it's either major inexperience or just thinking that he can just go ahead and try to get away with it. Does he have the kind of popular support that would allow him to just run roughshod and assume that he's going to get popular backing for it? He's got a lot of popular support because, you know, in the second round of elections, he received a majority of votes. Now, the question there for me is how long this support would last, because it's one thing in the first round, you probably see the voters who really are convinced, you know, that he's the best candidate. In the second round, then it's an option just between two candidates. So it's not necessarily voters who are so convinced. He's still in his honeymoon period, and the, the polls are showing that he's got a lot of support. Now, the question is how long it'll last, because when people start realizing, and this is going to happen in March, for example, now we're in the middle of um, summer holidays. Everything is very calm. January is usually a very, very calm month. But in March, when school starts and when people find that public transport has increased, that their electricity, gas and water bills have increased 100 or 300 percent, as they're saying, well, the increase in, in, in gasoline prices has, you know, has already happened and it's quite dramatic. And when, I don't know, parents who send uh, their children to private schools realize that their private school bills are 100% more, this is the moment where we may see that his support starts running low. And this is when you can start seeing maybe perhaps a lot of people in the streets. Right now, we've seen a terrible jump in inflation because before the second round of elections, Millet said that he was going to deregulate the economy. So that means, you know, that you can hike the prices of beef all you want. There used to be limits to what cuts of beef you could export. For example, the most popular cuts of beef, there were limitations to how much could be exported because the important thing was to maintain also the domestic market. In anticipation to this, every day the prices started increasing at the supermarket. And we are still waiting to hear how much the inflation in December was, but the expectation is that it was around 30%. Some of the effects are starting to be felt now. But when they start accumulating, I think it's very unlikely that his popularity will be maintained. I'm speaking with the Argentine political scientist Jacqueline Berend. Yeah, well, the devaluation alone uh, costs a great increase in prices. 50% devaluation of the peso was going to have a very large effect. And there has been some popular protest. How much has there been and what has Malay's reaction been to the protest? Well, there was popular protest um, a few days ago in, in you know, the main square in front of government house and in front of Congress. But, you know, in summer, these protests are never as massive as they are during the year. So the reaction of the government was to, well, they implemented a protocol. The security minister implemented a protocol that limits the right to protest and, and strike and that considers that any meeting of three or more people is um, a demonstration and requires authorization. So there was repression, but still the, the protest wasn't that big considering what large demonstrations can be in Argentina. It was a pretty big demo considering that it was still December. And there's a strike that the main unions have called for uh, January 24th. But I think in summer, the kinds of protests you can see in summer are probably going to be less than what we will see once the year starts, you know, in March and April. I think those are the key months. What's the uh, judicial environment like in Argentina? Uh, are these decrees subject to uh, being um, neutralized or, or invalidated by the courts? 
decrees can be invalidated either by Congress or by the courts. There is more tradition of the courts invalidating the decrees than Congress because originally decrees um, didn't have any, presidential decrees didn't have any control. And then, then in, in the 1994 constitutional reform, there was an introduction of uh, a clause that these uh, decrees needed to be validated by Congress or reviewed by Congress. And then this was that the specificities of, of this were, were enforced later on. But it's a quite an important requirement because it requires a majority in both houses. Now, in terms of the courts, it is easier because any judge can exercise this kind of review, of judicial review. Then, of course, it can go up, for, it can scale up to the Supreme Court, which has the last say. But um, right now, several courts have already said that parts of, the, of this huge presidential decree are unconstitutional. So I think, um, you know, there are possibilities that it, this will continue. This is one of the strategies that's, that we're seeing right now. Now, is he playing along with uh, um, the playbook that we've seen with other populist right-wing figures like him around the world of going on, on cultural issues against wokeness and feminism and the, the gay folks and all that? Is, is he playing that game? Yeah, he, he started with that during his campaign, you know, against feminism. He's very misogynist. He has a history of being very misogynist. And yes, so, so he did say some of that, but he didn't include any of this in either the presidential decree or in the, in the omnibus law. He didn't in include, for example, we have a, a law that enables gay marriage. Um, we have um, a law that enables abortion. He didn't include anything uh, against these two laws in the degree and in the omnibus law. So is he being cautious? You expect that's up his sleeve or, or, or is he just uh, not willing to make a move against that stuff? I think he's more concerned with other issues at this stage. I think he's concerned uh, with the economy. And then with a few favors, probably, that people are asking, because there are some things, you know, that make no sense. Like, for example, this item about football clubs, right, in the presidential decree. That really doesn't seem like part of his campaign platform. The only person who really is in favor of this is former President Mauricio Macri, who, who wants to be able to, to buy a club with associates from the Middle East. And then there are other like bizarre issues that are included in, in this omnibus law, like, for example, making judges wear black gowns and use gravels, um, which is something, you know, that has nothing to do with Argentina's tradition. It has to do with European and Anglo-Saxon tradition, but it has nothing to do with, with the Latin American tradition in general. He's going for what is most important for him and for his associates, which has to do with really just liberalizing the whole economy all at once. Are there any affinities with um, foreign leaders like Bolsonaro or Trump, Maloney, um, Orban? Is he part of that uh, nationalist international, as they say? In one sense, there is an affinity in the sense that they are all leaders of the extreme right to, to varying and differing degrees, that they they are all more in, maybe more Trump than Bolsonaro in terms of liberalizing the economy, because in Brazil, Let's see, Bolsonaro is a different kind of right-wing uh, leader. He was more conservative, right-wing, allied with the evangelists, uh, with the evangelical movement, and with the traditional right in Brazil and with the military, but not necessarily with the idea of privatizing, for example. So he's got his own particularities, I would say, you know. But I think, um, of course, we need to understand um, his election in a context of a global move where many right-wing leaders and extreme right-wing leaders are being elected. The popular move that produces these guys is that the whole system is a mess. Our standard of living is falling apart. Everything seems corrupt and hopeless. And so we're going to take a stab with this character. You know, that's a lot of why he was elected, right? Well, I think, I think you're right in that. A lot of what happened, at least in Argentina, was, you know, the voters that in 2015 were disillusioned with Peronism and voted for a, a center-right coalition, then in 2019 were disillusioned with this right-wing coalition because their salaries had gone down and their lives had not improved and poverty had in increased dramatically. So they voted against for Peronism and then the pandemic came and there was lockdown and their lives did not improve. And so now they said, okay, Here's this guy who 
has never governed before, who is telling us that he's got a recipe to make things right again and is promising us something good. And everyone else who promised us something failed, let's go for this guy. And in that sense, it makes sense. Voters are really trying to see who will improve their lot, right? Now, the problem is that these these measures don't appear to be improving the lot of workers, of the middle class, etc. Yeah, one can only imagine. Um, I don't think this package is going to work out very well. It will not produce the results that people expect from it. Uh, but <laughs> where do they go next? It's really kind of, kind of hard to imagine. Well, that's the big question. You know, I think um, the political system in Argentina and in general in many democracies across the world will have to come up with new forms, with new leaders to renew themselves and try to find, you know, a new meaning to what democracy is supposed to deliver to the population. Because this is something we're seeing in a lot of countries, right? You know, this disillusion, the fact that there is a lot of power from corporations from huge power holders who are no longer just national, but also international players. And the lives of the population are really not improving. This really probably is a call for the, for, for the political system to reflect on um, how it has delivered. I'm not optimistic that will happen, though. That was Jacqueline Berend, a professor of political science at the School of Politics and Government, National University of San Martin in Buenos Aires. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. of Totally Wired by the Fall, a perfect setup for my next guest, Benjamin Fong. Ben is the author of Quick Fixes, Drugs in America from Prohibition to the 21st Century Binge, recently published by Verso. Humans have taken substances to alter their consciousness from the dawn of time. Life is hard and getting high can be a welcome escape. Though, of course, those escapes are often not trouble-free. People can ruin their health and their lives in pursuing them. While the use of psychoactive drugs may be universal across time and space, Americans have shown an unusual proclivity for using them. We consume as much as 80% of some major drugs, about 20 times our share of the world's population. One in three Americans suffers from anxiety, depression, or both, over six times the global average. At the same time, for more than a century, we've also shown an unusual proclivity for launching anti-drug crusades and prosecuting users. No one fills up jails like we do, and our perpetual war on drugs is a major cause. Why do we consume, and why do we crusade? And why, despite the constant repression, do the usage stats keep rising? These are some of the questions that Ben Fong addresses in Quick Fixes. In nine chapters, each devoted to a specific drug or class of drugs, from coffee and booze through cocaine and marijuana, with a stop at Prozac and peyote as well, Fong analyzes the allure of the substances and the discourses around them. Benjamin Fong is Honors Faculty Fellow and Associate Director of the Center for Work and Democracy at Arizona State University. His earlier books include Death and Mastery, Psychoanalytic Drive Theory and the Subject of Late Capitalism, and The Green New Deal, which he co-edited with Craig Calhoun. Ben also writes for Jacobin, Catalyst, and Damage. Ben Fong. You say at the beginning of the book and at the end of it uh, that drug policy is not about drugs. So what is it about? I think that when we talk about drugs and drug policy, there are very often other kinds of social factors involved. And so this is this has to do with our great enthusiasm for drug use as well as our great vilification of it. And specifically with the latter, 
Um, anytime that, uh, that, that drug policy is formulated in America, it's typically targeting some specific group that's associated with the drugs. And so one of the principles really in the book, I call it an orienting claim, is that anytime you see claims about psychoactive drugs being made, you should always think about the various social factors and social groups associated with those drugs. And you mentioned that some drugs are framed as licit and others as illicit, not necessarily because of the effects of those drugs, but because who they're associated with, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the pervasive uh, divide in American drug discourse. On the one hand, we think about licit, white market, supposedly safe drugs, often distributed by pharmaceutical companies. And then on the other hand, dangerous, illicit drugs that uh, are social scourges, et cetera. Part of what I try to do in the book is to break down that divide and say, look, um, some drugs which are very similar in, in chemical composition uh, have been used in various different ways and with different associations. So for instance, methamphetamine, something that uh, is a very dangerous drug under certain circumstances, and uh, today it's made a big deal of, uh, it has historically been used as a pharmaceutical medication alongside other amphetamines. Um, so oftentimes one and the same compound can be treated very differently depending upon which side of the divide it's on. Why do people use drugs and why do Americans seem to use more than everyone else? There's a transhistorical question here. Why, why do people use drugs? And I think the simple answer is that it, they make us feel good. They uh, are uh, historically have been used in uh, just, you know, common social settings uh, for religious purposes, uh, oftentimes as an aid uh, to make boring agricultural work uh, a little bit a little bit lighter but uh, under contemporary conditions i want to argue drugs are are used for uh, different kinds of purposes very instrumental purposes either to get up for the day to be better at your job to be more productive uh, or to quickly unwind so that you're uh, you're ready for the next day and that particular instrumental use has coincided with fabulous drug use uh, in in contemporary terms so you know, Americans, we comprise, uh, what, 4 to 5% of the world's population, but we consume 80% of its opioids. Uh, we consume a bit more than 80% of its ADHD medications or amphetamines and amphetamine-like drugs. And, and really across the board, with the notable exception of cocaine, American drug use is at a historic high and all the trends are going up. So on top of uh, all the uh, pleasure that people take from drugs, we also seem to take pleasure in Banning it. Why all the uh, the efforts to prohibit that go alongside was obviously a deep felt human desire to drug oneself. Yeah, America is also unique uh, in its tradition of prohibition. Uh, this goes back to the late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, of course, this resulted in alcohol prohibition from 1920 to 1933. Uh, but it also resulted in things like the Harrison Act in 1914. This was the first uh, domestic drug legislation controlling opium and cocaine. And Americans were also responsible for pushing the first international regulations on psychoactive drugs as well. Uh, again, opium and cocaine. So we have this fairly unique prohibitionist attitude. Uh, I think since the 1970s, uh, we've been involved in what we could call the acute phase of the war on drugs. But, but really, it's been going on for over a century. And part of what I argue in the book, specifically in the alcohol and opiates chapters, is that um, the United States didn't really get the development at that period, again, late 19th century, early 20th century. You know, we didn't get the development of some countervailing political force uh, to the market. And so we didn't get the development of workers' parties, socialist parties, labor parties, the kinds of things that would create some modicum of personal security for working class people. And in the absence of that, I think we got really strongly moralistic movements, uh, such as the temperance movement. I think it's really difficult to make sense of the enthusiasm for temperance as a cause without taking into account the fact that the political vehicles for actually dealing with the problems of industrial capitalism were not on the table in the United States as they were in Europe. Well, as you point out, the politics of the temperance crowd were all over the place. Yeah, they really were. I mean, uh, I think that it's lar it was a largely middle-class movement. The Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Anti-Saloon League, both very middle-class organizations and very confused in their politics. I mean, there were suffragists and anti-suffragists. There were people who were uh, very progressive in their politics and people who were very reactionary. Oftentimes, the contradictions went to the very root of the movement. So there was a survey done 
uh, I think in the 1890s, of uh, members of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And it was found that the majority of the members were using different patent medicines that contained alcohol without really knowing about it. (laughs) Consistency is not uh, the the strong suit of uh, a lot of moralists. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about subdrugs specifically. Coffee. Uh, in some sense, was really a nice basis for the emergence of early bourgeois society, colonially sourced, uh, but also uh, the coffee houses were this, the site of early stock trading. It seems like a very early bourgeois drug, uh, but it's you know still with us uh, very much, and uh, we don't really think of it as terribly psychoactive, but I guess it is. Yeah, it's pretty strong. The times that I've tried to go off coffee have not been very pleasant. I think it's the most widely used drug in existence. Certainly caffeine is, but I think in the specific form of coffee, that's true. Uh, I think it's the second most traded commodity after crude oil. And I, I think it's also the only psychoactive substance that I know of that has not been demonized by the capitalist class. There there, there was a, a time uh, very briefly, I think in the 80s, when caffeinism was added to the DSM three, so it was it was treated as a kind of like psychiatric disorder to be uh, addicted to coffee, but that passed pretty quickly. And I think for the most part, coffee has had a, a unique place amongst psychoactive drugs in uh, American society. Uh, it's you know uniquely privileged for what it has to offer us, which is a very reliable kickstart to the day. Well, I hear people. I'm going to try to give up coffee, and I often wonder why. There's no evidence that it's really damaging to your health. It feels nice. It tastes good. <laughs> Why do you suppose that people sometimes have this revulsion? Um, I think it does make one jittery, <laughs> especially with a lot of cups. But as with any psychoactive drug, people react very differently to these things. You know, I have a friend, this is just anecdotal now, but I have a friend uh, with a caffeine allergy. And just a sip of coffee is like, you know, taking 10 cups for him. And he gets he gets wired, he gets uh, anxious, and it's just not great for his system. I think that's an extreme case, but people react very differently to it. And some people drink two cups in the morning, don't really, aren't really concerned about it. Um, some people drink a lot of it and feel really awful. As with any kind of drug, it can be uh, abused and used well as well. Most of the drugs you write about show no sign of going away, but uh, tobacco is an exception. Like, tobacco used to be ubiquitous. Now it's kind of rare to see somebody smoking, at least uh, in uh, upper middle class American society. Yeah, it was. It's a revolution. the 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 best uh, book about modern cigarette production consumption is uh, Alan Brandt's The Cigarette Century, and it's really a century long rise and decline. You know, the peak is roughly in the 1950s of cigarette consumption in America, um, and then it's declined pretty consistently since the 60s and 70s. And part of that has been uh, a great revaluation of the cigarette along class lines, and so people tend to think of cigarette smoking as, as a lower class activity. Part of it has been the very uh, successful efforts of consumer uh, advocates and um, specifically around secondhand smoking that like taking taking cigarettes out of public places was a huge victory because um, tobacco companies had worked very hard in the first half of the 20th century to get cigarettes acceptable within public spaces. But today, you know, cigarettes are, uh, it's still very much an epidemic. I would say that the cigarette is by far the most dangerous form of a psychoactive drug ever known to humanity. But, you know, despite the fact that cigarettes in particular are no longer valued in the same way, you now have e-cigarettes, vapes and whatnot, which are uh, popular, especially amongst young people, and not as dangerous in one way, but I think we've yet to see uh, the health consequences of this new new phenomenon. I like that you quoted Richard Klein's book, uh, Cigarettes Are Sublime, which is something I read years ago and really liked. But he he says that part of the appeal of the cigarette is precisely that it can kill you. The sense of back in my lit crit days, I used to write about the sublime. And the pleasure of the sublime is that it could overwhelm and destroy you, uh, which is a weird pleasure. And so people who go on about the dangers of cigarettes are in some sense playing to precisely that appeal. Yeah, I think Klein has the right intuition, which is that people who rail against cigarettes at a moral level are, are oftentimes inuring the habit rather than dissuading people from using cigarettes. And part of what he argues uh, in his book, Cigarettes Are Sublime, is that cigarettes allow a kind of meaning making from the day. They punctuate the day with ritual exit. So you go outside for five minutes and smoke a cigarette. And it, it provides a kind of rhythm to the day. It allows you to reflect, to sort of stand around, to think about something different than, than you were thinking about before. 
But part of it is also that it's it's straightforwardly destructive. And I think that especially today, uh, when there's this intense uh, ethic of self-care, neoliberal ethic of self-care, the idea that you would do something straightforwardly bad for yourself has a certain appeal. I smoked on and off for years, and I finally gave it up just because it made me feel terrible in the present. There was not any worry about what it was going to do to me in the, over the long term. But I guess not everyone feels that way. Yeah. As with any drug, again, it affects people very differently. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I feel similarly, like if I smoke cigarettes, I feel awful in the present. But knowing the long-term health effects and, uh, you know, the numbers are not, are not pretty. It's a very dangerous activity, cigarette smoking in particular. Now, we talked some about prohibition already, but uh, after prohibition, you point out that uh, the attention turned from alcohol to the alcoholic, from the substance to the subject. There was something just fundamentally diseased about the alcoholic that separated him or her from the, the common lot of humanity. Yeah, what do you make of that turn? What, what, what motivated that? Well, there's an obvious problem, which is that anytime you uh, allow alcohol, as with any drug, really, there are going to be people who have problems with it, who abuse it, who use it in ways that cause uh, different social ills. And in the case of alcohol, um, the substance itself was targeted by the reformers in a really convenient way, right? It's like it's not about any particular form of drinking. It is drink itself that is the problem. You ban the substance, you get rid of the problem. Very simplistic way of thinking about it. Well, after that goes away, and I think that was a welcome development, um, you still need some way of making sense of problem forms of drinking. And the focus on uh, alcoholism as, you know, at, at first a personal moral failing and then eventually a kind of medical medicalized disease, that was a really convenient way of shifting blame. Uh, it was very much promoted by alcohol companies to say, it's not the product, it's the particular susceptibility to a form of disease sometimes conceived in moralized terms, sometimes not, that is the essential problem. So it, it does make sense of um, alcoholism in one way, but it's also very convenient for alcohol companies. We tend to medicalize what are fundamentally social problems. And people drink for many, many reasons, but some of it is a social problem of, of social origin. We have maybe replaced moralism with medicalism, but uh, it's really a, a way of avoiding thinking about uh, the social problems that might give rise to uh, the heavy urge to medicate oneself. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult to think about the problem of alcohol insofar as it constituted a problem in the late 19th century without dealing with the larger social changes in American society. Alcohol had actually been uh, just on a, a consumption per capita basis much higher in the early 19th century. I well, I mean, your story of like the early, what, 18th century when three liters a day of, of uh, beer <laughs> was, on, was the average? Uh, yeah. I think from like until, you know, 1820, 1830, per capita alcohol consumption was something like three to four times what it is today. I mean, for across the board, people were drinking way more alcohol. There's a great book about the history of the period called uh, The Alcoholic Republic. So just in terms of sheer quantity – Alcohol consumption in the early 19th century was actually much, much higher than in the late 19th century, but it's really only in the late 19th century that you get the development of this national effective temperance movement. And so why is that? Well, it's the form of drinking. So after the Civil War, you get rapid urbanization, you get a industrial proletariat, and uh, the drinking looks very different. It's no longer drinking beer and wine throughout the day. It's going to the local saloon and getting hammered, right? And it was largely lower class immigrant men that were the target of the temperance reformers ire. So in that kind of situation, right, it's not the amount of alcohol being drunk, but it's the particular social ills that followed from industrialization that were at issue. I'm speaking with Ben Fong, author of Quick Fixes, Drugs in America from Prohibition to the 21st Century Binge, recently published by Verso. A, uh, a three-letter acronym that appears several times in the book, the CIA. Um, <laughs> they were very heavily involved in heroin, yep. in cocaine, and in psychedelics. Um, tell us that story. What was the CIA's involvement in these uh, uh, spheres? Sure. There's, there's different stories for those different drugs. Um, but very briefly, it, it became very apparent during the Second World War that controlling international drug flows, as well as the flow of their precursor chemicals, was extremely important to the United States, that it was a source of global power. And so um, in, in licit terms, uh, there was a very proactive attempt to control those flows. But in the, in the flow of illegal drugs, this was true as well. And the CIA was very intimately involved in supporting 
uh, opium growing, for instance, where it supported uh, anti-communist uh, uh, resistance in various places. Uh, this is true in, in, in multiple locales uh, through the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. With psychedelics, uh, there's a more particular history there, which is the history of the of the secret program MK Ultra. This was modeled off of similar what you could call torture programs, essentially uh, that the the nascent CIA had learned about uh, from the Germans and Japanese during the Second World War, and the the hope with MK Ultra was to gain uh, what they described as as master slave controls over the human mind. And so there were uh, domestic experiments on on people using LSD at very high doses in a wide range of contexts. Uh, and the hope was essentially to break people, to figure out how to break uh, the human mind and reconstitute it so as to have perfect control over it. It failed, uh, but uh, it will, you know, I think go down as one of the really horrific experiments conducted by the American government. It's interesting. They, uh, they had a hand in running that Haight-Ashbury Clinic back in the late 60s, too. Yeah, they were essentially in charge of a lot of different things. This was all secret funding. Sometimes people didn't know exactly where the funding was was coming from. Um, but they, you know, they, they funded a lot of different experiments. Uh, also, they had a, a sort of a, a, a state, state licensed brothel, you could say, uh, where they experimented with sex and LSD and how you could like control the art of seduction along with uh, psychoactive drugs to make people do certain things. They had a variety of psychiatric clinics where they were essentially uh, bankrolling psychiatrists to perform very odd experiments uh, that often left people broken afterwards. Uh, it, it manifested in a wide variety of contexts. Speed uh, has an interesting history. Um, it started out kind of as a drug of war, and then glamour, the rat race, it makes you a better performer until the perverse effects kick in. Um, yeah, what about the history of speed from war to uh, speed freaks and burnouts? Yeah, I mean, amphetamines first came on the market in the 1930s. Uh, it was in, first in the form of Benzedrine. And right away, people realized it was a kind of miraculous drug. It helped you lose weight. It helped with performance, uh, both cognitive and physical. It was a mood lifter. Um, you know, it helped you be thin, peppy, and smart, right? What's, what's not to like about that? And um, amphetamines received a huge boost during the Second World War, uh, when they were issued pretty liberally to soldiers uh, in such a way that it became normalized for them. And then when they came back, it became normalized really for American society. And throughout uh, the post-war period, 50s, 60s, really until the mid-60s uh, and definitely by the Controlled Substances Act in 1970, uh, until then, amphetamines along with other white market medications like uh, barbiturates and benzodiazepines, these were fully normalized drugs sort of taken like adult candy really. Today, it's Adderall for ADHD, I mean, which is speed. Yeah, I mean, it's the exact same drug. It's racemic amphetamine that was in Benzedrine. Uh, and this has different forms. Uh, there's dextroamphetamine or dexedrine. Methamphetamine hydrochloride has been prescribed for some of the, the same things that amphetamine and dextroamphetamine have. It's an odd historical twist that this drug that was, you know, we realized had a lot of problems uh, going into 1970 uh, came back uh, with a vengeance uh, specifically for uh, the treatment of ADHD, but now other diagnoses as well. And those two histories are oftentimes pretty disconnected that we don't think about uh, ADHD medications as having that that longer history. But in some ways, it's, it's like a, a capital syntonic drug. I mean, it makes you work harder. It gives you more discipline. Uh, it's the kind of thing that uh, um, the productivity boss would uh, be pleased by. For sure. I mean, I don't think uh, someone asked me recently what the most American psychoactive substance is. And I think it's got to be amphetamines. They help you lose weight. They make you peppy. They help with cognitive and physical performance. Uh, they, they sort of realize the American dream in pill form. You have this um, little diagram uh, where you uh, trace this history from uh, the popular diagnosis of the time. Neurasthenia then moved on to anxiety and then to depression. And causes for the first two are attributed to society and now for depression in the present to the brain. Yeah, talk about that evolution and that history. Yeah, I think this is one of the more controversial claims in the book, really, that the term... I, I was convinced. 
Okay, great. <laughs> the, so what's called uh, in literature the biological revolution in psychiatry, um, this was a complicated development that I would say really culminated in the 1980s with the DSM-3, which is the big psychiatric manual. I think that it ushered in an era, a new era of biological reductionism in psychiatry. So, you know, I include a lot of uh, psychiatric advertisements from the post-war period in the book. And in, in one sense, they're quite terrifying, right? They, they convey social imperatives pretty well. But that's the most noticeable thing about them, that you can see what kinds of social stresses that people are dealing with in the advertisements themselves. And people were quite open about talking about American society as a stressful place to live in. They talked about anxiety in particular as something that was an effect of Western civilization and something that was, while uh, detrimental to individuals, uh, worth it, essentially. Right, that it was worth it to have this kind of kind of anxiety, provided we were uh, we were blessed with the with the gifts of material progress. Yeah, the Soviets don't suffer from anxiety because they're unfree. It was <laughs> it was a sign of our freedom, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean that 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 discourse, that connection between freedom and anxiety, was very very palpable in a lot of sources. And with the with the biological revolution in psychiatry, you essentially get a muting of this discourse. And so, uh, you know, different psychological ills they become less about the kinds of social stresses that we're dealing with, and more problems of the brain, problems of neurochemistry. And you see this in the advertisements as well, right? It's no longer someone stressed out at work or uh, a housewife dealing with the terror of like the domestic cell. It's now two neurons, right? Place cap to cap with little neurochemicals like going back and forth and saying, oh, this will help with a certain reuptake mechanism. And this is the essential problem that we're dealing with. It's a very powerful discourse. You know, it's really helpful to say, oh, I'm not dealing with personal problem X, Y, or Z, or oh, I'm not dealing with social stressor A, B, or C. I'm dealing with some specific reuptake mechanism in my brain, and this drug is going to fix it. It's a very appealing narrative. But I think it's also reductive, and it's really difficult to make sense of mental health and American psychology today without going back to that social reference. But uh, as you point out, the, the science behind the brain chemistry explanation is not all that definitive. And the double-blind studies with placebos and things like Prozac show that uh, they're no more effective than placebos. So um, yeah. I, I get in trouble every time I bring up this critique because people say, it, it, it helps me so much. I can understand it. It made people feel like it, it, it's helping them. But I don't know. Is it really? It certainly helped some people. I think that's important to say. And uh, as with all psychoactive drugs, it's this kind of double-edged sword, right? There are benefits and there are harms and a sort of rational way to talk about them is to discuss both. I do uh, devote some time in the book to discussing Prozac in particular because I think it's a particular case of pharmaceutical enthusiasm and excess in advertisement where uh, there, there isn't really an underlying reality to support it. To forecast a little bit, the relative uh, ineffectiveness of SSRIs like Prozac and Zoloft, it's really made uh, the present moment particularly receptive to different psychedelic medications, which promise to be much more effective. But then also you use the phrase, the, the cure creates the disease. We've certainly seen that a lot in the history of medicine. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that a lot of times uh, drugs are in search of a, uh, a consumer that pharmaceutical companies uh, want to market different things uh, to different uh, diagnoses that they will oftentimes promote. Uh, this is true in you know a lot of cases like depression, ADHD, et cetera. Pharmaceutical companies have been very actively involved, uh, both directly and through subsidiary corporations like different astroturfed advocacy organizations in promoting certain disease categories so as to better market their drugs. Uh, this is sort of part of um, pharmaceutical marketing logic at this point. Okay, and now the concluding portion of an interview is always the what is to be done section. <laughs> you're certainly no fan of the drug war and the criminalization of everything. But on the other hand, you're not a letter-rip libertarian about it either. Um, so what, what is your policy? Yeah, so just to reiterate, uh, the drug war uh, is largely a fantasy. It has never worked uh, from the beginning. And um, it's also borne all sorts of perverse consequences uh, that we once recognized in alcohol prohibition, impure substances, thuggish policing, inflated profit margins for illegal activity, all that stuff. 
But then the other side of it, the, the, the part that's become more popular today is a kind of liberal drug reformism uh, embodied in decriminalization and harm reduction movements. And there's a lot to be, um, be lauded in those, right? In the basic proposals, let's say legalizing marijuana, eliminating mandatory minimums, decriminalizing personal possession. These are all things that can work in the right ways, but on their own, uh, they're not going to be very effective. Without larger social provisions, without transforming healthcare, for instance, or providing good jobs in America, you're not going to deal with the drug problem in America, in, again, insofar as it, it, it constitutes a problem. And so part of what I want to say at the end is that if drug policy is not really about drugs, to go back to the beginning of the interview, uh, it's always about larger social problems, that we ne- then we need to deal with those social problems if we're going to deal with the problems we associate with drugs. And the two best ways to do that, to my mind, are providing people uh, stable, good employment, uh, which regularizes the day and generally it's found involves lessened drug use, or at least lessened problematic drug use. And of course, reforming the um, wildly unjust American healthcare system. Yeah, as I was reading the final pages of the book, I had this moment where I said, "This all sounds very sober." I mean that in somewhat pejorative sense, because perhaps this is my unreconstructed bohemianism speaking. But um, I don't know. Where's the ecstasy of that? Yeah, it, it, I, I think that uh, the characterization is accurate. I think it's a sober book in a lot of ways. I, I think that what. Uh, we should I, so I, to, to go back again to the question of what is transhistorical in drug use, what is always going to be true of human beings versus what is particular to drug consumption in a capitalist society. Human beings are always going to use drugs, and I think that's a good thing. But the form of drug use is going to vary widely depending upon the social stressors involved. And I think the hope, the hope in the conclusion of the book. Uh, is that through various uh, reforms, the level of, of jobs, healthcare, housing, et cetera, by creating the conditions for um, material prosperity in the United States, um, it might be possible to create what I call a free relationship to drugs, right? Not just having safe routes of administration and safe environments to take drugs in and medically accurate information about them, but also less social stress, anxiety, misery, et cetera, that compels drug use. And so the hope with all these changes would be to create a free relationship to drugs that we can take them because we want to take them, not because we're trying to escape something. I was Benjamin Fong, author of Quick Fixes, recently published by Verso. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a song that captures the temptations and perils of amphetamines. White Light, White Heat by the Velvet Underground. Till next week, bye.